His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Amen. So today, just like last week, we have a long and complicated story. This week is specifically a physical healing story, though last week's was clearly a healing also. What's different today is today's is an overt miracle story, the kind of miracle that we might expect would get a whole town or neighborhood buzzing. And if we listen carefully, we realize that it does. This long story, to me, is like a beehive. It's buzzing and buzzing and bubbling over. There are many players involved, a lot of people talking to, and let's be honest, at each other. It's complicated enough that we won't be able to discuss all of it, but I want to hit some of the larger themes. The first thing that I want to point out is that we need to tread very carefully in terms of the assumptions we might reflexively make about some of the players involved. Most obviously, we need to be especially thoughtful about how we interpret anything that John writes in this passage about the Jews. After all, pretty much everyone in the story is Jewish. Jesus, too, was Jewish. Given that John's gospel was the last of the four canonical gospels to be written, and given the divisive political situation at that time, we should be asking ourselves how is John shaping the narrative to suit his own slant. Even more importantly, we should be mindful that there is likely way more going on beneath the surface than an initial reading might reveal. So at first blush, it sounds very much like John is setting up the Pharisees as the fall guys. After all, they are the ones who are incredulous and not willing to believe that this man could have been healed. They are the ones who are called to come investigate. And they are the ones who claim that Jesus is a sinner for healing on the Sabbath. But let's make a note of one key thing that happens in the very beginning of this passage. Who are the first people to ask Jesus what we might initially think is the burning question in this reading? Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It's not a coincidence that John has his disciples pose that question and that he has it coming out of their mouths right at the start of the story. So hold on to that observation for a moment 
and I'm going to take us on a very short digression. My maternal grandmother, Anne Jane Holton, was born in the early 1900s in rural Louisiana. She was the youngest of 11 children. Her father died before she was born. And Jane was not the easiest person. As I got older, though, I started to learn things about her that explained some of why she was the way she was. She had a very hard life right from the beginning. Because her father died before she was born, people in rural Louisiana made her into the object of a great deal of superstition as a young child. They would come from all around the county and the state to touch her because they thought she had special magic in her body. So just imagine for a moment the amount of pressure that would put on a little girl to have random strangers touch her at any time and in any place. I'm telling you that story because it taps into the same kind of magical thinking we hear in the disciples' question, the conundrum that this passage initially seems to be about. Why do bad things happen to good people and how can we protect ourselves from them? These are the questions that we wrestle with our whole lives. And far too often, then as now, the answers go something like this. Maybe we don't know what it was, but that person must have done something wrong, so they deserved what they got. We humans love patterns. It's one of our strengths, making meanings and connections. But it's also one of our weaknesses. I remember once during the height of the Civil War in Lebanon, reading that people in, in that country were saying, you know, the bombs only fall on the odd-numbered side of the street. And I'm sure there were other people saying, no, 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 they don't fall on the odd side, they only fall on the even. We want to protect ourselves, so we seek out reasons why that bad thing could not possibly happen to us. And too often when we do that, we end up scapegoating the person to whom it did happen. But wait now, you might be saying, isn't there a whole huge book in the Hebrew Bible about this very question? Yes, there is. It's the book of Job. And isn't Job a righteous man who has unmitigated disasters heaped upon him? Yes. And don't his friends come and feed him exactly this kind of pat answer? that he must have done something bad so he deserved punishment from God? Yes, they do. And doesn't God answer Job by reminding Job of God's 
ongoing, limitless, abundant, creative work among us and in the world. Yes, that's what God does. Guess what? So does Jesus in this passage. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. And then he says, he was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. Hmm. I can't speak for you, but for me, that second sentence, it gets to be a slippery slope. It sounds at first like Jesus is saying that, you know, suffering is okay. Because God deliberately meets out suffering on specific people so that the rest of us can learn a lesson. Which circles us right back to that's why God does, you know, bad things happen to good people because God must have thought they deserved it. But if we look deeper, I don't think that's what Jesus means. Why was I born with brown hair? Why does my older son have black eyes? Why did the bomb fall on the yellow house and not the red one? Why did the earthquake destroy Lisbon? Why did COVID happen? Why was this man born with blindness? Some things happen because of human aggression. Some things also happen because of good intentions gone horribly awry. But many things just are. Stuff happens, and none of those things are anyone's fault. When Jesus tells us that this man was born with blindness so that God's works might be revealed in him, Jesus is reminding us that God does not desire this man to be unable to see. God does not desire suffering or pain for any of us. Jesus is reaffirming that God's work of creation is still unfinished. This universe is still becoming. God's work among us is ongoing, generative, and generous. How quickly we forget that we live always in a world of already and also not yet. Not too long after Russia invaded Ukraine, I said to my son, yes, I get it, you're afraid, and this is dangerous, and this is bad. But as dire as it seems, we do not know how God will work in the days ahead. We do not know for certain what will happen. Let's wait for the unexpected. Let's be on the lookout for it. I think we can all agree that this war has unfolded in incredibly unexpected ways. Looking out for the unexpected, 
It feels to me like that is the heart of this story. John and Jesus are reminding us that we don't always know as much as we think we do. By saying that God's work will be revealed in this man who was healed, Jesus shows us that we are asking the wrong questions. The questions are not, why do bad things happen to good people, and how could I avoid them? The questions are, how does God respond to limitations? And how then do we respond when we encounter God's continuing, loving, creative actions that break down limitations. So let's return to the buzzing hive of the neighborhood, to the people talking to and at each other. How did they respond to their brother who had been healed? Did they rush in with happiness saying, dude, you can see? Not that we hear. Not so much. Now imagine that we are those people. How would we respond? Would we deny that we even knew who he was? Would we be skeptical of the healing, wondering if it was a trick? Would we think, well, maybe he wasn't actually born blind and this is some really elaborate con going on here? Excuse me, we're New Yorkers. Wouldn't we be likely to respond that we're too sophisticated to fall for a hoax like that? We'd want proof, I promise you. That's why it's so important that the disciples are the first one to ask the question, because we are the disciples. Yes, the Pharisees are the ones called in to investigate, but please remember that was their job. They were trained to be skeptical and ask questions. They were tasked with being gatekeepers. Their presence in the story should prompt us to ask, how are we being gatekeepers? Who are the gatekeepers for Episcopalians? How do we limit God's abundance and creativity? How often do we forget to recognize the resurrection happening around us all the time? How often do we choose to be skeptical instead of stopping and celebrating? Can we take a moment to imagine how it would be if someone that you knew was miraculously healed? That is where Jesus is calling us to look. That is what he's asking us to examine. Celebrate now! He's saying, this story is pointing to the deeper blindness we impose on ourselves by intentionally refusing to recognize and celebrate God's creative actions among us, even when they're right in front of our faces.
God is here, God is active, and God is present among us, working within us that which is pleasing in her sight. So how will we respond to God's loving and creative work? Jesus is telling us to celebrate today, celebrate tomorrow, celebrate the day after that and the day after that and every day thereafter. Beloveds, this story reminds us that God is good all the time. Amen.